So good, we're right at noon. Come on in. Um, so uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Glenn Wally, who is an associate professor of Japanese literature in the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures at the University of Oregon. He's affiliated faculty member in Asian Studies, Comics and Cartoon Studies, and Translation Studies. Uh, Professor Wally earned an MA in Japanese Literature from uh, Washington University in St. Louis in 2001 and a PhD in Japanese Literature from Harvard in 2009. Uh, Glenn's teaching interests focus on Japanese literature of the early modern, that's the Endo or Tokugawa period, but also include medieval literature, modern literature, visual culture, comics broadly defined from medieval picture scrolls to contemporary manga, and translation studies. His research interests involve popular literature and how it negotiates the requirements of industry and genre, the demands of a mass audience, and the aspirational pull of serious literature. Uh, his main focus is popular fiction of the late Tokugawa period. His book, Good Dogs, Edification, Entertainment, and Kyokute Bakin's Nansot Satomi Hakenden, that I do, yes, well. <laughs> uh, is the first monograph-like study of Hakenden, a landmark pre-modern Japanese fiction. He's also working on an, uh, an astonishing, uh, complete translation of Hakenden. Uh, how many volumes is it in Japanese? Uh, or how many pages is it in Japanese? About 6,000. 6,000 pages. Oh, I should talk a little bit about that. <laughs> it's a massive <laughs> translation project. So um, the first volume, part one, An Ill-Considered Jest, was published in summer 2021 by Cornell East Asians, uh, on the, in the Cornell East, Asian, East Asia series. The second volume, part two, His Master's Blade, was published in early 2024. As a 2023-24 OHC Faculty Research Fellow, Glenn is working on the third volume in this project, titled Eight Dogs Part Three. He shares his work in progress with us today. Please join me in thanking Glenn Wally. Do I need to unmute this? Or is that already going? Oh, it's already going. Hi. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank uh, you all for coming out today, um, especially it's wonderful to see some grad students from my department because I didn't manage to get the word out to them until last night. Uh, and even more, since I'm not teaching this term, nobody's grade depends on being here, and you're still here, which is just, which is fantastic. Um, so yes, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out today. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to talk about my work and a real rarity to be able to talk about it at AUO, as those of you who are faculty members might know. I'm. We never get to talk about what we do at the place we do it, right? So I'm having flashbacks to my job talk right now, which is not, well, I mean, it came out okay, so I guess that's all right. Um, I'd also like to thank from the bottom of my heart the OHC for their support this term. Uh, from time to time today, I'll touch briefly, very gently, on the fact that not everybody, even in the humanities, agrees on how translation should be regarded in terms of scholarship, i.e., should I even be doing this? I'm convinced I should, and having the OHC allows me to keep doing it a little longer, and I really so here's how I'm going to proceed today. First, I'm going to give a general overview of my project, uh, what it is I'm working on, what the overall shape of the final result will be, and how the things I'm doing this term on the OHC fit in. Second, I'm going to say a few words about a topic I'll be addressing in an essay that forms part of my project. Then third, I'm going to zoom in on one passage of the work I'm working on, using it as a kind of case study of what I do and try to do as a translator. By doing that, I hope to speak how to how translation exists as scholarship. That translation is, in fact, a form of scholarship is my basic assumption. So my project centers on an early 19th century Japanese novel entitled 
Nansu Satomi Hakkenden, or Hakkenden for short. We're always trying to make this shorter in some way. Um, or in English, The Lives of the Eight Dogs of the Satomi of Southern Fusa, or Eight Dogs for short. It was written by a fellow named Kyokute Bakin, uh, 1767-1848, who is a key figure in Japanese literary history, not only because his work was so popular and influential, and it was, but also because he was one of the first, if not the first, person in Japan to make a living as an author. He was very proud of, his, of this. In his generation, and largely in his hands, the writing of fiction went from being a pleasant, dilettantish pastime to being a more or less respectable profession. But his ambitions were not merely monetary. At a time when commercial fiction was considered to be, at best, harmless entertainment, and at worst, a pernicious indulgence, uh, he sought to turn it into a vehicle for serious intellectual and, dare I say, philosophical inquiry into literature, for lack of a better word. We should probably always put that in scare quotes these days. He succeeded to such a degree that when Japan's late 19th century literary modernizers sought to take stock of the state of Japanese fiction prior to the advent of Western models, Bakin came to be seen as the culmination of the native tradition. Eight Dogs, in particular, came to hold, for better or worse, an important position in debates over the course Japanese fiction should take in the new Meiji state. So, as Paul kindly already mentioned, my research into Hakkenden first took the form of a dissertation and then the monograph that earned me tenure, Good Dogs, Entertainment, Edification, etc., uh, published in 2017. And I hope I don't sound immodest when I note that despite Hakkenden's universally acknowledged, at least within Japan studies, importance, it had attracted little scholarly attention in English up to that point. Mine was the first monograph about it in English, and one of, the, one of a very few pieces of scholarship of any kind to deal with it. Why was that? So I can point to two factors at least. One is the language. Although it was written comparatively recently, serialized between 1814 and 42, this was still before Japan's written language was modernized. This means that it uses the traditional literary language, which can be quite challenging for modern readers. Bakin's version of it is made even more difficult by the inclusion of many elements of literary Sinitic, which was standard for pre-modern Japanese literature, and of quasi-vernacular language drawn from recent Chinese fiction, which was not at all standard for pre-modern Japanese literature. Uh, add to this the fact that no complete annotated edition exists in Japanese, and you have a pretty daunting text linguistically. Then there is the length. Hakkenden uh, may be the world's longest novel. It comprises 180 plus chapters, distributed between, in its original issue, 106 fascicles, or individually bound volumes. Uh, the standard modern typeset edition, which is what I'm working from, is nearly 6,000 pages long. Uh, simply reading it is a gargantuan task, and one that looms as prohibitive to any Anglophone scholar contemplating working on the novel. My first time through in grad school, it took a whole summer of basically eight-hour days, five days a week, thank God for funding. Um, so of course, I've taken it upon myself to translate the whole damn thing. I embrace my masochistic side. Um, I've been working on it since about 2006, and I finished a rough draft of the whole thing in summer 2022. If you're curious, it's 4,619 pages. Um, yes, I've let the publisher know how long it is. Um, since then, I've been working on revisions, annotations, and scholarly introductions for each volume. It's being published in multiple volumes, one at a time, uh, each separately peer-reviewed, so they get the chance to back out at any stage. Um, <laughs> by Cornell University Press through their East Asia series. 
Each volume will have a separate translator's introduction in which I analyze a different aspect of the work. So part one, uh, An Ill-Considered Jest, has an introduction that examined Joaquin's literary style and then also set forth what I was trying to accomplish as a translator. Part two, which just came out a few weeks ago, has an introduction that analyzes the role of illustrators and illustrations within the work. And in addition to all this text, Hakkenden contains nearly 400 illustrations, which makes it, just as this one book, a treasure trove of 19th century art. And that brings me to my OHC project. I'm currently preparing part three, Absent Companions. Uh, the cover will probably look something like this for submission and hopefully peer review if all goes well. So what that means is that I'm revising my draft translation for chapters 39 through 58, which I completed several years ago, adding annotations, which I didn't do the first time through, and writing the introduction. So this time I'll be focusing on the publishers and their role in shaping the final product. I hope to submit the manuscript to CEAS in summer 24, and if all goes well, it should appear in print in 2026. So first, a few words about my planned introduction to part three. So one of the things that makes Bakin a fascinating writer is that in his pages, we can see how contested the figure of the author still was. In commercial fiction, it had only been within Bakin's own lifetime that it became a universal practice to even identify the author of a work in its pages, and we're speaking of fiction here. So that when we say that Bakin was one of the first professional authors in Japan, we're saying that he not only found a way to make his writing pay, but that he was also finding a way to make sure his name was always identified with the work. Seems obvious to us today, but this was not always the case. Um, he was creating the figure of the author as auteur, in other words, which of course seems circular since auteur simply means author, but basically he's positioning the writer of the work as the one in charge in a moment when it wasn't obvious to everybody that the writer was always the most important creative force. For one thing, since popular fiction was invariably illustrated, Writers were constantly in danger of being overshadowed by their illustrators who had become professionalized long before this. The relative, uh, so illustrators' names are almost always attached. Um, the relative creative agency of writer and illustrator and how Bakin utilized both text and image in his authorial process is what I write about in the introduction to part two. So in part three, I plan to address a third figure that had equal claim to be considered the auteur behind the work. This was the publisher. Publishers in Bakin's day combined the roles of book manufacturers, that is, organizing the physical production of the book, booksellers, distributing books through their own shops and through networks of itinerant book peddlers, and publishers, that is, funding the writing of new books that, that, that they then made and sold. It was a capital-intensive process, and indeed one of the most famous diagrams of the relationships between different figures in the book-making process envisions the publisher literally as capital a fat and happy guy with a gold coin for a head. <laughs> the writer is just one subordinate in this process, right, emanating from the power of gold coins. Um, no more privileged than the illustrator, the copyist, the block carver, or the printer. Nor was the publisher's role a particularly behind-the-scenes one. Publishers slash booksellers specialized in different kinds of books, scholarly tomes, elementary school textbooks, popular fiction, etc which allowed for easy identification of producer with product. And within the realm of popular fiction, more than one publisher had made his name synonymous with a whole genre. In order for Bakin and others like him to establish the writer as auteur, they had to overcome not only the prominence of illustrations, but the tendency of readers to regard storybooks as quasi-industrial products to be associated with a manufacturer and marketer, as 
uh, in this particular illustration, which is from a storybook uh, that happens to be about the publisher of that storybook, who's the guy sitting in the middle of his shop here, surrounded by multiple iterations of his logo, and he's the protagonist of the story. So it's very clear that the message is identify this product with him as opposed to anybody else in the process. And indeed, people did. So what I hope to do in my introduction is to explore the roles of the multiple publishers who handled Hockenden over the course of its serialization and how Bakin's relationship with them, his negotiations or arguments with them over length, content, and craftsmanship, shaped the book as readers came to know it. One interesting development I hope to detail is how Hockenden provided an opportunity for book lenders, that is, for-profit lending libraries, to get into the publishing game. So think of when Netflix made the transition from renting DVDs of movies made by others to producing its own content. Basically, halfway through its serialization, Hakkenden is transferred from Paramount Pictures to Netflix, if you will. Uh, so much for the introduction. Let's talk about the translation. And to do that, I want to zoom in on one paragraph in one of the chapters that makes up part three, chapter 45. Here we go. Dosetz held his enemy's head in his left hand, but now he discarded it with a bellow. His sword, cutting murderous streamers of cloud through air that gave no resistance, set up a deadly blade gale. And what were these droplets? Did it bring rain? The famed blade moistened the ground with its power, and as the enemy foot soldiers slipped in the mud, he cried, I have you! And his trained hand cut them down with a thud. In the blink of an eye, the field of Juolu was filled with blood, and many were those who had been struck down. Exciting stuff, right? This, this is why I got hooked on this, on this book. But what's going on here? So our hero in this chapter, the guy crouching on the other guy, is a warrior named Inuyama Dosetsu. Dosetsu is one of the eight dogs of the title of the book. These are eight samurai, they're not literally dogs, um, who are born into eight different families, each with the word inu or dog in their surname. So Inuyama his surname translates to Dog Mountain, which is a fairly standard, but not exactly common surname. Uh, in the story, though, that immediately identifies him as one of our heroes. These eight dogs, or dog warriors, are in fact the spiritual descendants of a woman named Princess Fuse, daughter of the Satomi warrior clan, and her dog, that's Fuse, spiritual descendants. In part one, Fuse immaculately conceives Yatsufuse's children, and when she learns this, she kills herself. In, in horror. Her eight unborn progeny are somehow mysteriously born or reborn. It's a little bit uh, dicey, whether it's the original spirits or whether this is a reincarnation, as these eight dog warriors. But they don't know of their connection to each other or to the Satomi at first. They learn their true identities gradually, one by one, as they meet each other and team up through various adventures. So in chapter 45, we, the readers, for example, know that Dosetsu is a dog warrior, but he doesn't know it himself. He was introduced back in chapter 27 in an altercation with one of the other dog warriors only to drop out of the story almost immediately, but not before making off with a famous magical sword belonging to a third dog warrior. This sword, Rainmaker, is a major plot point in part two with all sorts of symbolic and story significance. To its rightful owner, Inuzuka Shino, it means legitimacy, as it was passed down to him from his father and his father's father before him. They, in turn, had held it in trust for a member of the Shogunno family who they had once served. It's Shino's father's dying wish that he present Rainmaker, the sword, to the current descendant of that noble family in hopes of entering his service. Unfortunately, the sword, the sword is stolen from Shino, and in a roundabout way, it comes into Dosetsu's possession. 
Uh, and as of chapter 45, Dos has, hasn't even yet met Shino, the, the rightful custodian of the sword. Shino's friend, another dog warrior, has already tried to get it back from Dosetsu. But Dosetsu refused to relinquish it because he's on a quest of his own to avenge his father and his lord, who were killed in battle when another shogunal official destroyed his lord's family. So to Dosetsu, the sword has a, an entirely separate significance as a powerful weapon that he thinks will help him take his revenge. Why does he think this? It has magical properties. When drawn, or when wielded in battle, accounts differ, it emits a fine spray of water from the tip of the blade. Insert phallic interpretation here. <laughs> There's a lot to say about that. We're not going to say it to you. Um, that's what's going on in the paragraph from chapter 45 that I just quoted. After nearly 20 chapters, Dosetsu abruptly reappears, having finally found a way to get close to his father's enemy, the shogunal official Ogigayatsu Sadamasa. Dosetsu poses as a drifter sitting by the roadside whom Sadamasa encounters while on a hunting excursion. Dosetsu, pretending to be down in his luck, mentions that he has a magic sword in his possession and offers to sell it to Sadamasa. Intrigued, Sadamasa asks him to come closer and show him the blade. Dosetsu comes closer, then draws the blade and cuts off Sadamasa's head. Later, it turns out that this wasn't the real Sadamasa after all, but a decoy. And so Dosetsu's quest continues for another 100 chapters. Um, but in the moment I'm quoting here, he thinks he's triumphed. And all that's left for him to do is to fight his way through Sadamasa's startled but determined retinue and make his escape. Here, too, the trusty rainmaker proves its worth because its moisture turns the battlefield muddy, causing Dosetsu's foes to slip and giving him the upper hand. Soon, we're told, the field of Chuolu was filled with blood. Except this battlefield isn't named Chuolu. This fight is taking place on the flanks of Mount Myogi in northern Japan some 1,300 miles from Zhuolu, which is in northern China. What we have here, of course, is a classical reference. Bakin's narration is comparing Dosetsu's battlefield to a famous battlefield from Chinese legend. One can assume that at least some of the original readers would have gotten the reference, uh, and I do want to come back and qualify that. Zhuolu is what we're going to be talking about for the next little while. Generally understood as the site of a legendary battle in which the Yellow Emperor, Huangdi, defeated a rival people led by a figure named Chiyo. So this is taking place way back in Chinese prehistory or mythical history. The Yellow Emperor, this mythical figure, was commonly regarded as, in the words of Anne Burrell, the fountainhead of Chinese culture and civilization, and his defeat of Chiyo is regarded as a key step in the establishment of what emerges into history as Chinese civilization. Chiyo, this antagonist, meanwhile, was understood as the leader of one of the border peoples against whom Chinese civilization defined itself. But he was also sometimes depicted, as here uh, on this uh, Han Dynasty tomb painting, as a quasi-human, quasi-animal being, even sometimes divine, perhaps a rain god. So given this, Bakin's invocation of Zhuolu, the site of their battle, would have conjured up in the mind of an educated reader, at least, a turning point battle between a culture hero and a perhaps monstrous antagonist. So if the reader gets this far in deciphering the illusion, they're naturally led to ask, is Dosetsu meant to correspond to the Yellow Emperor or to Chiyo? Imagine, if you will, a world in which Bakin compares the battlefield to Gettysburg. An American reader immediately wonders if Dosetsu is Union or Confederacy with all that that implies, right? Um, it turns out there's probably a bit more going on with this illusion. The specific reference to blood on the field of Juolu the, the phrasing there closely echoes a passage in chapter 29 of the Taoist classic Zhuangzi, 
where the battle is briefly recounted with the comment that, quote, blood flowed over the field of Zhuolu for a thousand leagues. Uh, what's interesting about the Zhuangzi reference is that in characteristically iconoclastic fashion, uh, this Taoist text positions Huangdi's victory not as a step in the glorious rise of Chinese civilization, which everybody would have understood it as, but as part of society's decline from a golden age of perfect virtue, innocence, and peace when people didn't need rulers. Um, this uh, reference occurs in the famed Robert Zhu chapter, where sages are dismissed, not as people who bring civilization and enlightenment, but as people who only provide tools that robbers and uh, bandits exploit for their own gain. Huangdi in this reading, in this Taoist reading, rather than being an exemplary sovereign, is part of a process of instituting oppressive bureaucratic rule that continues to this day. So awareness of the Zhuangzi connection here doesn't remove the reader's quandary as to which side Dosetsu represents, but it does potentially reverse the resulting value judgment. The other significant referent here, and there's, I think there's at least one more, is the early compendium of legends uh, Shanghai Jing, or the classic of mountains and seas. Book 17 of this text gives another version of the Battle of Zhuolu, and here Chiyo is credited with the power to call down wind and rain to deluge the battlefield. Not found in all the other, in necessarily all of the other accounts. Huangdi still wins because he's able to command a drought to defeat Chiyo's powers. Shanghai Jing was particularly well known in Japan in Bakin's day because it talks about a lot of monsters and everybody loved monsters. Uh, including Jiyo, right? And I suspect he has this version of the story in mind here too, since he's already referred not only to rain in the form of the moisture emitted by the sword, rainmaker, but to wind in the form of this blade gale, tachikaze, one of his favorite expressions for swift swordplay, right? The idea is that you're swinging the sword so swiftly that it brings up a wind. Um, a reader cognizant of this association can't help then but associate Dosetsu with the antagonistic, perhaps quasi-monstrous, Chiyo. So what is at stake in deciding which mythical fi uh, figure Dosetsu reminds us of? Nothing less than our moral judgment of his actions. And for Bakin, this was everything. I mentioned earlier that Bakin was ambitious to improve the social standing of fiction writing, as well as the, the remunerative nature of it. And he did that by trying to invest his stories with moral lessons. Didacticism, in a word. His formulation for it, borrowed from Chinese precedents, was Kanzen Chowaku, or promoting virtue and chastising vice. And if I might be allowed a short digression, when I began working on Bakin many years ago, um, specifically the question of didacticism, I always felt that I had to defend him from the basically late 20th century assumption that literature or entertainment concerned with morals was old-fashioned and necessarily simplistic. Uh, but with each passing year, I think in contemporary culture, we can see more and more of an expectation that our art and our entertainment conform with our morals. We might call them ideals of social justice, but I think it shakes out to about the same thing. We're still looking for lessons or statements in our fiction. So I don't think Bakin is all that different. Um, if he could make his literature edifying, i.e. by demonstrating the virtuousness of virtue and the viciousness of vice, he could convince readers it was worth spending time on and therefore money. But in Bakin's case, there was an additional rhetoric at work. In the Confucian tradition to which Bakin was heir, Kanzen Chowaku, or didacticism, was considered the rightful province of history. That is, historiography was assumed to be about recounting the past and always drawing moral lessons from it. This was what elevated and dignified the writing of history. It was, in fact, one of the most respectable kinds of writing you can engage in. 
Fiction, on the other hand, being made up and therefore lies, was considered incapable of inculcating virtue. Don't even try. Intent, it tended to do, in fact, just the opposite, or so ran the assumption. So Bakin argues otherwise. He's not the first in East Asia by any means to argue otherwise. He was expanding on arguments and practices pioneered by fiction writers in China as well as Japan, but he was so determined and explicit about it that for later generations in Japan, he became synonymous with didacticism in literature, which means that he expected his readers to be constantly evaluating his character's actions. At times, he steps out from behind the curtain and states the lesson being taught, but often what he does is invite readers to exercise their own judgment. And Dosetsu is, I think, one of the most striking examples of this in the book. For almost the whole length of the story, Dosetsu's primary motivation is the vendetta he's pursuing in the scene that I'm focused on today, which he thinks he's finally finished, but in fact hasn't. Um, so his lord and his father were killed in battle by the forces of a rival warlord who just happens to be part of the governmental structure. Dosetsu is, about to, is out to avenge his father and his lord. What would have been obvious to readers at the time, but perhaps isn't so obvious to us, is that this desire for vengeance marks Dosetsu not as someone taking the law into his own hands, but as a moral person to the nth degree. As a samurai, a member of a hereditary warrior class, Dosetsu is part of a society that values loyalty above all. And loyalty was considered a cardinal virtue and was understood as the duty the main duty a person owed their superiors. A warrior should be loyal to his lord, a son to his father. This was standard Confucianism and a discourse that would have been familiar to pretty much any reader in East Asia at the time. What was perhaps more pronounced in early modern Japan than in other places was the way this emphasis on loyalty intersected with expectations placed on warriors in a feudal system. Simply put, vengeance could be and often was seen as a virtuous act being the ultimate expression of this loyalty. You're expected, in other words, to take up arms in the service of loyalty. This was certainly the case in a warlike period such as the 15th century, which is when Eight Dogs is set. But it was still the case in the peaceful 19th century when Bakin was writing the novel, a period when samurai as a hereditary ruling class were far more bureaucrat than soldier. They still retained a self-consciousness as warriors, at least in name. And thus, even in the tightly controlled peace of the 19th century, legal provisions were made for samurai seeking to avenge wrongs done to fathers or masters. You could register a vendetta and then go off and carry it out under carefully prescribed rules, not supposed to hurt innocent bystanders, but you could actually say, I, you know, I'm going to go kill my father's enemy now, and the local magistrate would say, great, you have my blessing. Real-life vendettas were rare. Nobody really wants to go through with this. But in fiction and on the stage, they were everywhere, and they were understood as representing an arena for moral action. A vendetta story was first and foremost an opportunity to contemplate good and evil, self-sacrifice or selfishness, moral aspiration or villainy. So Dosetz being engaged in this, being kind of defined by his vendetta, is thus an archetypal 19th century heroes, hero. And readers are predisposed to root for him, especially once we realize that he's one of the fraternity of eight dog warriors that the whole book is about. But, and this is an important but, he goes too far, or at least maybe goes too far. So the enemy he most lusts after, this fellow Sadamasa, who he thinks he's crouching on, just about to behead, is not in fact the one who killed his lord or his father. Sadamasa himself did not go to war against Dosetsu's father's lord. Sadamasa's retainer did. Properly, Dosetsu should limit his quest to the head of this retainer, but he wants more. He wants the man under whose auspices the battle was waged. The problem is 
that man is a government official, one of the highest ranking members of the entire feudal regime of his day. Now, in the novel, Sadamasa is not presented as a particularly sympathetic character. Most readers probably wouldn't be upset to see him killed. And in fact, most of the dog warriors run afoul of him in one way or another by the story's end. He ends up being a, the enemy of all of them. And it's also true that the novel is set in a period of civil war when central authority really didn't mean very much. Still, readers of Bakin's own day, themselves living under, under a powerful shogunate, must have had a twinge of uneasiness in reading about Dosets setting his sights on Sadamasa, a member of the ruling uh, clique. Is he striking a blow, not just for justice for his dead father, but against an unjust exploitative system as a whole? Or is he overshooting the mark and thereby turning a virtue and device? Is he defining himself basically as a treasonous? It's not hard to see how these questions can be rephrased as more general ones concerning basic principles. What loyalty does one uh, owe an unjust regime? What happens when one loyalty contradicts another? This is precisely the type of serious moral question Bakin hoped his fiction would prompt his readers to consider, even as they enjoyed the blade gales and the fields of blood. So I hope uh, all this makes clear what's potentially at stake in the allusion to Zhuolu here. If Bakin is invoking the Yellow Emperor and his foe Chiyo, then we're being asked to decide for ourselves which one is Dosetsu and which one is Sadamasa, which is another way of saying we're being asked to decide whether we think Dosetsu is in the right here or not. It's not a question readers would have been able to answer fully, I think, until the end of the novel. And in fact, the other dog warriors themselves, paragons all, never seem quite sure. More than once, they try to talk Dosetsu out of targeting Sadamasa, but he always argues uh, his way into it. So I think that's one reason why Bakin brought Zhuangzi and Shan Haijing into it. We're, we're predisposed to see Dosetsu as a hero. And he wants us to consider that maybe, just possibly, he's a monster. Now, do I think every original reader understood all this, picked up not just on the general allusion to the Battle of Zhuolu, but the two specific recountings of it that I think Bakin is drawing on here? Of course not. Bakin certainly hoped they would, but I'm sure even he expected that not all his readers would get it or even care. Um, I like to think of Eight Dogs and most of Bakin's work as being what we'd now call middle-brow fiction. It was commercial and thus low by the canons of his day, but it was also aspirational. Therefore, it attracted a mixed audience. Some came just to be entertained and weren't well-read enough to pick up all his illusions and probably didn't care. But others were and did, and his fiction had to work for both groups. He throws in things like the allusions to Juolu for those who can appreciate them, but usually, not always, takes care that they don't distract from the storytelling for those who can't. So what is a translator to do with all this? I want to leave aside for the moment the constraints that are often put on translators by editorial policy and the commercial considerations that can guide it. Often a translator won't have the option of doing much of anything in a situation like this because many presses won't allow annotations. In that sense, I'm in an enviable position because I'm translating for an academic press. My editors want footnotes. More the better, it seems like. Um, I don't know what the readers want, but that's what the press wants. So I'm free to decide what to annotate and how to annotate it. The constraints guiding my decision will therefore be A, my own ability to understand the text, and B, my informed judgment on how best to help the reader to understand it. So assuming I pick up on the illusion myself and I'm not going to pretend I'm catching everything, I could decide to leave it out. In other words, one way of translating a passage like this 
would be to eliminate the reference to Chulu entirely, which is easily enough done. I could simply render it in the blink of an eye, the battlefield was filled with blood, nobody notices anything, and we get on with the action. So in Hakenden, as a rule, if I find an illusion, I annotate it, but there are gray areas where an illusion has become so familiar an expression that it might lose its illusionary force, in which case an annotation might be making a mountain out of a molehill, and you can all probably imagine things like that. So for example, if I describe, as a, if I as a writer describe someone's office decor as Spartan, am I really alluding to the ancient rival of Athens? <laughs> and if a translator translates me and puts in a footnote saying, this is, you know, gives the whole history of Sparta versus Athens, Athens like crediting me with too much intentionality, right? Are they distracting us? And it's that kind of thing. So I, you always have to decide, is this illusion, is it really an illusion, or is it just another word by this point? So having decided that it does merit a footnote, the next question is, how extensive it should be. I've just given you a pretty full explanation of what I think this reference means and what's at stake, and it took me about eight pages of double space times New Roman 12 point type. That's probably too much for a footnote, and it might have been, <laughs> might have been too much for a work in progress talk as well, for that matter. Um, <laughs> So I could go minimalist. I could simply note what happened at the Battle of Juolu and hint at what was at stake. That is, mention the Yellow Emperor and Chio and leave it at that. For me as an annotator, that's fairly low-hanging fruit because if I look Juolu up in a dictionary, that's what comes up, and I love it when that happens. Uh, but that wouldn't account for the specific phrase from Zhuangzi. Do we need to account for the specific phrase from Zhuangzi? I think so. I mean, it's possible that the phrase had simply stuck in Buckingham's mind. This is a hyper-canonical text. He would have read it numerous times, so maybe the phrase just sticks, and thus it sort of finds its way into his prose accidentally. But I think it's more likely that he hoped readers would recognize where it came from and thus be inspired to the ruminations that I've just led you through. Based on my reading of Buckingham's use of allusion over a broad swath of his work, I do believe this is an intentional allusion, so I want to indicate that in the footnote. What about the third element, the Shanghai Jing, Shanghai Jing detail about Chiyo muddying the field of battle? It's not a direct quotation, but I'm convinced Bakin had it in mind as well, and thus wanted his readers to recognize it. Bakin was staggeringly well-read, and he loved to let his readers know it. He was a pedant, in other words, and incorporated it into his authorial persona, and it's not at all unusual for him to do what he's doing here and layer two or three variant sources into an illusion. It's often not enough for him to just point to the story. He wants you to notice that he's doing this. And in fact, in my monograph, I argue that this is a kind of game he's playing with his readers. So he tips them off overtly to some sources in hopes that they'll recognize others and thus be drawn deeper into the referential and therefore subtextual world of his fiction. So therefore, I want to mention the Shanghai Jing uh, reference as well. So the footnote I arrived at is this, Zhuolu Tan, Site of the legendary battle in which the Yellow Emperor defeated armies led by Chiyo, sometimes understood as a monstrous figure and sometimes as the leader of a border people. The specific reference to the field of Zhuolu covered with blood likely comes from chapter 29 of Zhuangzi. Baki may also have in mind the account of the battle found in chapter 17 of the mythology collection Shanghai Jing, Japanese Sankai Kyo, uh, where Chiyo is said to have covered the battlefield with wind and rain before being defeated. So I'm trying to keep it brief, even though this is a long paragraph. But you may also notice that I'm trying to keep it relatively factual and free of commentary. I want to give readers hints that could lead them to explore the possibilities and issues I've outlined today, but I don't want to flesh out the argument in my annotations, partly because that would take too much space, and partly because, like Bakin himself, I want readers to be able to draw some of these conclusions for themselves. 
Uh, I noted at the outset that I proceed from the assumption that translation is a form of scholarship, and I hope that the foregoing has demonstrated why I think that. In making the translation slash annotation choice I've discussed here, I'm drawing on my research into the intellectual as well as literary history of Japan and China, and into the social and commercial as well as ideological milieu of the early 19th century. And I haven't even had time today to touch on the theoretical work on the act and effects of translation that informs my practice. But a lot of this scholarship is invisible in the final product. I try to keep it invisible, as I say, so as to allow readers to develop their own conclusions. But in doing so, I've come to realize that I'm also failing to make the case to others in the academy that translation is scholarship. And I recognize that many of my colleagues, even in the humanities, aren't sure about that question. Let's be honest, you don't get tenure for translation, grad students, you don't get tenure for translation. <laughs> and you may or may not get promoted. Um, UO is more supportive of translation than a lot of places. We have a center for translation, which is awesome. But even the most supportive of translation often consider it kind of service to the field at best and a hobby at worst. Um, this isn't the place to mount a full-scale argument to the contrary, but by discussing the research, analysis, and uh, informed interpretation that has gone into one particular translation choice, I hope I've at least assured the OHC that their support is well-placed as well as received with gratitude. <laughs> to do this earlier, but I brought some of the original, um, and I'll pass it around if anybody wants to, to take a look sure. at what things like this look like. I love to introduce people to physical books from this period. So, so questions for what? Yeah. Well, I was about to ask you a question about the illustrations yeah. because, as you noted in your diagram, they're very important. But uh, Anne Rose is in the corner, so <laughs> I know she can ask a better question than I can. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, how do you deal with the illustrations in your translation? Yeah. I mean, it's an unfair question because you are involved in, shall we say, a specific aspect mm -hmm. of it. But given the importance of the illustrations, uh, what do you say about them? So uh, that's a great question, thank you. And I, I, I look, let me go back to, to where everybody can see the beautiful full version of this illustration without words in front of it. Um, just way back here. Here we go. Um, first, I'll say that this illustration is by a pretty famous woodblock print artist. So these illustrations were done by people who tended to, ha to also be doing standalone prints that would be full color, sold in their own right, that would tie into plays or other things. The main illustrators for Hakenden specialized in books, but this is done by a fellow named Keisai Asen, who was kind of stepping in as a pinch hitter for somebody else who mm -hmm. couldn't, couldn't meet the quota. And he was a really famous designer of these full color prints. So his, I wish he'd done the whole thing, because his are just so full of detail and spirit. Um, so I'm lucky in that the publisher recognized from the start that these are important. And so most, most translations of fiction from this period that I've seen will take an illustration, which as you can see is a full page illustration, mm -hmm. and they'll shrink it to part of the page in the interest of space. Uh -huh. And this publisher was kind enough to say, let's focus on the full page. And so they give a full two-page spread for each one. And they've even allowed me in different editions, sometimes publishers back in the day would 
would revise the illustration a little bit or add or subtract kind of a, a wash of shading. And they've even allowed me to, to reproduce these alternate versions. So, so that's great. They're, they're allowing me to, to call attention to these. But I try to, so when I'll, when I'll present the caption, I'll translate the caption, and then the figures are labeled and I'll translate those. Any other text that appears, I'll translate. But beyond that, I try not to add really any commentary. Um, if an object seems like it's hopelessly obscure and people wouldn't be able to figure out what it is, I might try to identify it. But um, I'm trying to to not add explicit commentary too much. Sort of the same philosophy as the footnotes. Let someone else do that. I'm always thinking of actually how I would teach this in a classroom. And I would want to let the professor look awesome by saying, here, this is what this is, right? And not have it be transparent that they're taking it from the meditation. Glenn, would you pass around the translation so we can get your new Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can get a look at what that looks like. And then I'll ask a question about what you just said, which is, um, what's the audience in your mind for the translations? So everybody is the answer. Um, but I really, you know, realistically knowing that it's coming out from an academic press and that they've allowed me to do things like footnote and also um, translate in a style that is sort of self-consciously archaic in places, um, which I talk about, you know, why I do that uh, in the intro of the first volume. I recognize these sort of all limit the audience. So primarily, we're talking probably classrooms. But uh, it has, I've seen a few reviews in more mainstream places, and it has gotten some attention. Thing is that the story um, keeps getting recycled in anime and manga. There's a really popular anime series right now going on in connection with this. So um, there are at least a few people out there in popular culture land who stumble across this and realize, oh my god, this is what this anime is based on. So um, I'm trying to keep people like that in mind. I want it to read well, as well as having all the scholarly bells and whistles. Um, but of course, that's going to involve lots of balancing. How much does it go for? Uh, <laughs> it's got, there's even an e-version. The hardback is prohibitive. It's like 100 bucks, you know, hardbacks for yeah. academic best. But they're publishing in a paper, too. They're, yeah, publishing in paper, which is, I think, around 30, 35 bucks. It's not, not too, I've seen, yeah, I've no, seen no, some no, from no. others uh, that are worse, so. Timo. Ah, uh, yeah. So, this is fascinating. Thank you for coming. Uh, so, I have a question about the classical illusions and the textuality. Yeah. So, you mentioned the star is primarily written in vernacular or waboon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With those classical illusions back to ancient China, does Bakin drop into kanbun or kanshi? I mean, does the textuality yeah. change it? It can. So in this particular case, so what he's asking is, you know, does he shift into writing in Chinese in cases, which is not uh, an unthinkable thing for an educated person of his period, right? It's kind of like Latin in, in Europe in the 18th, 19th century. Every educated person should have some facility in literary Chinese. Um, and in his case, so this particular one, it's a one-word illusion, so he's not shifting diction. But there will be cases where he'll have a character quoting like a whole phrase or something from a Taoist or a Confucian text, and sometimes it'll just be the phrase in the original. He's always got, however, um, so this will be really inside baseball for those who don't read Japanese. But so there's the main line of the text where it has Chinese characters written, dropped in there, which of course 
Chinese characters are used in Japan. But there's a second line of the text where every Chinese character is given a Japanese phonetic pronunciation. And so when he drops in a line or a paragraph from Chinese, he'll always put this, this sort of gloss so it can be read as Japanese. He's conscious. So in other words, he is writing in Chinese, but simultaneously in Japanese in these passages. The preface to every new installment had like a three or four page uh, sorry, every new installment came with a preface of about three or four pages that was composed in Chinese, but it always has these markups so people can read it as Japanese. He was writing for a period where um, a lot of reading happened orally. So people, like, you know, people would sit around in a room and one person would read aloud from a text. And we know that this is the way a lot of stories were consumed and everybody else would be like doing, you know, chores or needlework or whatever at night while they're listening to this text. And he's conscious that his text has to be both readerly and listenerly, which is, must be an impossible thing for him to balance. But. Can you give a few examples of why academics don't think that translation? <laughs> <laughs> I know I don't want to open hands. Yeah, yeah. um, uh, why it's not as you know yeah. pursuit. So the like the most trenchant article I've read on this is, is a little bit obscure. It was written by a Japanese studies guy at Berkeley named Alan Tansman about twenty years ago for for like a. a a publication of the California University System for each other, right? So not really public-facing, but kind of like, anyway. And he basically is, is pointing out that um, people, so we, we can think of scholarship in the humanities or scholarship in literature as kind of like, um, what's his term? We've got um, I forget the other term, but the, we've got the archive, and then we've got pronouncing on the archive, right? And the real scholarship is where you're, you're, you know, for lack of a better word, where you're engaging in theory or where you're engaging in generalizations. You're, you're arguing uh, larger points based on evidence from the archive. But the archive, of course, is the, the texts, the language those texts are written in. Um, if all you're doing is writing about the archive, you're not going to escape area studies, right? And my monograph doesn't escape area studies. I'm only writing about Japanese language texts. I'm writing about them in the context of Japan. I hope that some of the things I say about them might have relevance to other places, but I'm essentially addressing other Japanese studies scholars. Um, as opposed to, this is going to sound snarky, but I attended uh, Michael Allen's talk here a month ago, and it was completely overflowing. I mean, and what he's doing is, you know, very heavy-duty theory on cinema studies, and he's taking examples of specific things, but he, the whole register of what he's doing as a scholar, and I hope he doesn't think I'm, you know, uh, criticizing him. This is amazing, and I could never do it, but everything he's saying is on the level of um, theory, right, which can kind of be applied, or the, the assumption there is that that can be applied anywhere, right? Translation is kind of the ultimate opposite of that, because we're dealing not with even just a subset of texts, we're dealing with a single text, right? And so, uh, over the decades, humanistic scholarship has tended to see that, in Alan Tansman's words, as basically fetching data from the archive that then other scholars can use in the real work of scholarship, which is analyzing that data, right? Basically, you know, the translator fetches. Um, and that seems to be the way, um, the way it's viewed. I don't think people are as um, realize that they're viewing it that negatively, but I think that's essentially it. 
Translation accounts for one text, uh, but it doesn't make arguments. There are arguments, but they're submerged in, in how you're handling the text. Um, nah, does that sound? <laughs> one way to think about that is when we do our promotion and tenure, the way we're evaluated is in three categories. Research, teaching, and service. And a lot of people look at translation as service, not as research. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I agree with Glenn that University of Oregon is actually pretty advanced in, yeah. in, in seeing translation as genuine research. But Glenn is absolutely right. None of us would ever recommend to a grad student that if you want to get tenure, the first thing you do is do a translation. Yeah. No, do not do that. Get tenure, and then you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, when I was interviewing, so I flashed back to my job talk here, um, and they had, you know, I have a translation center. People do translation. I interviewed at another school that I won't name, and, you know, I get to the dean's meeting, and the dean has looked at my CV, and she says, I see you translate. Don't translate. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't do that here. We don't recognize that here. So we don't want you to translate if you get this job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but as you showed, just with your footnotes, there's considerable analytical work right. and uh, judgment involved in that. But I think this prejudice against translation partly stems from the fact that many uh, translators, uh, shall we say, not pre-academia, mm -hmm. but uh, shall we say, uh, coincident with academia, were not scholars. Mm -hmm. In other words, yeah. uh, the, the woman who translated most of Dostoevsky was about the furthest from an academic right. that one could imagine. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that partially explains the prejudice, but of course, what she was doing, that is translator Dostoevsky, is really not what you're doing. Yeah, and I wouldn't argue that all translation is de facto. I mean, it all it's always an intellectual exercise, but it's not always scholarship. Just like you can write analyses of cultural topics as as peer-reviewable scholarship, or you could write them for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, right? right. It's, it's all the same kind of writing, but it's happening on a different level with right. different levels of review, right? So there's, there's translation, which is, uh, yeah, happening, I guess, maybe on other levels or from other motives or with other value sets, right? So I'm, you know, talking about the subset that's going, you know, through academic presses and what you need to do to get uh, peer-reviewed translation published. And, like that, yeah. And I'm speaking particularly in the history of my own field, where um, when I was first becoming aware as a scholar, you know, I was still working from a lot of things that had been published, and I still do, because the field moves very slow and it's very small, published back in the 50s and 60s. And I realized at a certain point that it used to be standard that one's dissertation and one's tenure book was study plus translation. And a lot of the translations that in pre-modern Japanese studies we still use in classrooms came out of that model, right? You would write a 50-page introduction where you account for features of the text, talk about the, the style, provide all of the scholarship, you know, that little bit of an argument, and then you would translate the thing so that other people would know what the hell you're talking about. And that used to be perfectly fine. And then at a certain point over the 80s and 90s, that becomes less and less common, and uh, we don't get as many translations, for one thing, from pre-modern. So go use translation <laughs> <laughs> focus. <laughs> I think I thought you had something like that.
it was questionable the covering like how much freedom you uh, did you have yeah. in the cover yeah. and did you try to like uh, recreate some like feel of like Edo period so yeah. this cover it's a really interesting thing so some people will recognize these because the, the cover images are from the UO library special collections um, so uh, they asked me for cover ideas, and I originally, these are, some of the original covers that they were published under are quite graphically beautiful, um, and I first proposed those, but they're beautiful, but they tend to be like cute little puppies frolicking around, and they thought, mm, cute little puppies is cute, but it's not really what the story is about, so maybe let's not go there. And so then I had a couple of other ideas, and one is there, there are lots of series of single sheet prints that are dramatizing these characters. We don't own any, but they're, they're out there. So that was one idea. But we also have these um, small, they're called uh, votive slips that are, that are printed. These were printed late 19th century um, by the same processes, full color, designed by very famous people, um, but that were circulated privately among collectors. Uh, and we happen to have one that's a series of the Hakkenden characters. We're missing one of them, but but we have this. And these are pretty cool too. And so I, I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. Plus, they're in our collection, so I wouldn't have to, you know, pay to pay permissions fees. And I showed them to them, they loved them. Like the one on the cover of the first volume. Um, so if you read Japanese, you realize that she's holding up a sign that has the name of the person who commissioned this, which <laughs> nobody's asked me, who the hell is this, you know, <laughs> this only can person, right? What does he have to do with the book? Nothing whatsoever. Um, but she's a character in the book, and this image of her riding on the dog, she appears as kind of this goddess riding on this dog later. So this is actually, like, really key for the novel, but it just was later art. And this is uh, one of the dog warriors, and so the rest will all have dog warriors. So they let me have a lot of input. I gave them some options, and they chose uh, what they thought was good. You want to just tell them about your votive slips? Oh, yeah. So this, uh, and Kevin and Kumiko are here, and they're the ones who like know the most about this of anybody. But um, our library, so these votive slips, it was kind of a privately circulated form of woodblock printing that people would collect, and there's a, there's a whole subculture surrounding it. And we have perhaps the largest collection of these in the world. We've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands <laughs> of these slips mounted in uh, scrapbooks. The museum has quite a few also in the thousands from the same collection, but it was sort of bifurcated when we, when we uh, acquired them, uh, that are loose, just in envelopes. So just this massive trove of woodblock printed art from reaching from the early 19th century up until the 80s, I think, is when the most yeah. recent stuff, the 1980s, is when the most recent of these were made. And the subculture continues today, and Kumiko is attended some of the meetings and written about the subculture today, so I'm presented on the subculture today, so it's a real, it's a real thing we've got here. But you have a digital yeah. television. Right, yeah, thank you. I, uh, a couple years ago, I got a grant. Um, the library and museum had a uh, Mellon Foundation grant to do things that use both collections, and so I put together this, this digital exhibition, selecting some of these voter slips that have to do with uh, ghosts and monsters, uh, yokai of various kinds, and put some commentary together about them and put this website up, which uh, seems to get some attention because everybody loves yokai. Everybody loves cute monsters. So. If you go to Glenn's webpage, 
the university webpage, there's a link there that will yeah. take you to this yeah. digital exhibit. I, I highly recommend this. It's their one of the images on, is on a food truck. Yes! <laughs> yes! There's a food truck. There's a food truck that has this, this like monstrous figure who's holding a tray of tofu and he's got one eye. That is, there. I've never seen that image anywhere but in our voter slips. And I like, asked him about it when I saw him. I'm like, did you get that from the URL website? And he, he, I think he was afraid I was going to accuse him of some sort of copyright thing. He's like, oh, no, no, no. My friend found it on the web somewhere. I'm like, no, no, this is all public domain. It's okay. But it's really cool. It's, uh, last I saw it was in South Eugene, near, near Berries. But yeah, it's kind of bounced around the web until I came back. I think absolutely appropriate to Bakim's sort of broad spread of who he's trying to reach. We had visitors a couple of weeks ago who were interested in Japanese woodblock prints and yokai. And so um, this was not your average scholarly visitor. This was a tattoo artist. Uh, the only way yeah. you learned that Professor Glenn Wally is here at the university. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you have serious street <laughs> <laughs> Tattoos, tattoos. <laughs> Yeah, I love talking about these things. So. Um, so I was curious about the current um, translation view in terms of Hakenden, um, but also um, like pre-modern literature. So yeah. specifically, so with I guess I'm thinking more contemporary literature, but there are you know times where people translate not from the original, but like you know if if a novel is translated in English, then they use that. Yeah. As, so I'm kind of curious if. Something you know similar also happens in Hakenden where you know if someone uses like um, uh, translation like in you know uh, um, uh, in like modern Japanese um, mm -hmm. writing and then they use it and you know also like what your feelings are towards that translation method. Yeah, that's a good question. I know this happens with modern novels, um, and a lot of people are alarmed that this happens with modern novels, but yeah, it, things will get translated into English, and then sometimes they'll be translated from English into German or French or Italian, and then sometimes they'll bypass English, so it's not universal, but this does happen. Um, I don't know if this has happened with any pre-modern texts. Um, I, I could definitely imagine it happening, um, as, especially for something like The Tale of Genji, which is probably being translated into to most languages by this point. I wouldn't be surprised if some people are working from the English, but I can't swear that they are. Um, yeah. Specifically, like, you know, even when it's, like, Japanese, like, if it's not the original, like, Japanese, like, they look at the... Yeah, and I haven't seen any instances. Yeah, so, you know, kind of, like, getting, like, modernized versions of Chaucer or something like that in English, right? There are modernized versions of the Tale of Genji and of Genden. And I haven't seen any translation that I can tell was done from one of those. I think translators know that that would be a no-no. I mean, you can look... I look at them as a kind of a commentary, as an aid to understanding the original, but I don't know of anybody who's translated from one of those and passed it off as having been translated from the original. Um, they shouldn't do that. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> Hi, I'm so sorry, I'm late. So um, I was wondering, each of these, you call them fascicles? Yeah. Okay, so. Is there like a natural stopping point at the end of one? So in the original publication, um, like original installments, each one of these fascicles would have two chapters. Uh, and so like the first installment was 10 chapters. It came in five of these fascicles, two fascicles per. Um, 
I, you might notice that I said that in the original form, it totaled 106 fascicles. And that's because book lenders would get these. So these circulating, and this probably circulated more widely through these uh, book renters rather than sale. Um, book renters would get them, tear them apart, add a bunch uh, of padding, and, and then, because you're, you're renting by the fascicle. Right. <laughs> so like you, you might have to rent 10 separate fascicles to get all 10 chapters. And so it's really rare now to find a complete copy of this because it was also serialized over you know, a period of almost 30 years, one complete copy of this that it's, that's in its original form. I've never s examined a copy that is only 106 fascicles. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are longer, and I have, this is my own copy, which is 186 fascicles. So clearly some book lenders have been like padding it out. Um, and when you do that, then it gets real weird divisions because they'll just they'll just do it willy nilly. So you have like the the you turn to the last page and it'll have like the chapter title for the next chapter and like where's the rest of it? You have to find the next. So chapter. my real question is about your translations. Yeah. So how are you deciding where? Oh, so oh, I see for those. So um, I am not gonna be observing the original divisions. I'm dividing it up into sections that make a little more sense uh, for readers. And he sometimes would conclude things or sometimes end on a cliffhanger. And I'm willing to end on a cliffhanger, sort of, but I want each one to sort of end in a satisfying place. So for example, uh, part one of the translation is the entire first installment and part of the second installment. And I just end it there because it's a real break in the action. Uh, rather than like ending on a cliffhanger, which he did. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of doing that for each one. Each one sort of comes to a climax. There's things left unresolved, but if you stop reading there, you will. Maybe I shouldn't do this. If you stop reading there, you still felt like you've arrived at a place. So my last follow-up yeah. to this is, how many volumes will your translation so finally be? I want to end it in eight, um, but that means probably the eighth one is going to be about a thousand people. <laughs> 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 Which uh, I sort of have mentioned this to my editor, and she didn't really have anything to say about that. <laughs> um, you know, I could split it into nine or ten. The original, so this standard edition in Japanese is 12 volumes, and that seemed like... I guess by the time you're ready, why not do 12? But I think the publisher is probably reassured if I'm going to say I'm going to bring it in at 8. We'll see. Um, I suspect that by the time we get to that point, you know, everything will be online anyway, and the, the physical book uh, will be dead from academic publishing. And how old were you? <laughs> no, 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 I'm thinking of this. I mean, it's definitely going to be post-retirement by the time I get to that one. I was, I was hoping to move them along a little bit faster, but it seems to take about three years to cycle through, like, submission, peer review, get back to revisions, proofs, and things like that. So, yeah, so I'll definitely be retired. <laughs> so we're, we're just past one. Please join me in, in thanking Gwen. And if you Thank want you all for coming.